the beginning is very challenging, right? But that's what I like about the whole virtual thing is most people give up. And it's at that time where you need to really stand up and keep going. So what I do is if I'm trying to hire one, mentally, I'm trying to hire 10 or 15 people. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Juan Diaz. Juan is a real estate investor in the Bay Area, and on this episode, he'll share how to hire the right team members to run a fully independent real estate business. Learning how to leverage other people's time and talent allows you to spend more time doing the activities that matter. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Juan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and how you got into real estate. So my name is Juan Diaz. I've been in real estate now for, God, 20 plus years. I started out just helping an uncle flipping a house and um, they were doing trustee sales back in in the 80s. And I was getting paid 20 bucks a day to give them a hand. And um, that was my first introduction to real estate. So you were helping them on like the construction side? So yeah, so basically they would buy houses at trustee sales and then I would do the construction and well, I wouldn't do the construction. I was just basically a helper cleaning up. Back then we used to mud walls with a bag, man. So you stick a bag, plastic bag into mud and then you texture the wall, just kind of texture like this. And then you hit it down with the spatula. And that, that was my job is basically grabbing mud, putting it on the walls and then somebody would come behind me and, and uh, slap the mud down. So that was back you said in the 80s, right? And then what happened? How'd you get into real estate full-time? And then, so that was a really important lesson for me. And then I bought my first house in Fremont. That was in 2004. Dabbled a little bit in real estate, helping my brothers before that, just again, just giving them a hand. They were in real estate prior to me being in it. And from there, I made $100,000 on my house, moved over to Belmont, pulled out you know, $250,000 in equity about a year later. And I started buying heavily at trustee sales in Alameda County. Did you have a full-time job? Back then I had a transportation company. So I built a transportation company from me to, um, I had 75 guys that were working for me. So it was, it was working in conjunction with the transportation and courier company that I had. Cool. So you're always like in business for yourself. Ever since I was a little kid, man. Wow, entrepreneurial spirit. And so why did you decide to do real estate full-time compared to your transportation business? You know, it was chunky money. I was used to getting paid $20 on a job. And at the end of the day, it was great. You know, I made a thousand bucks, you know, sometimes a day in, in transportation. But in real estate, I would make, you know, 50, 60. My biggest deal back then, I think, was like probably about 200,000. And I looked at that compared to a thousand a day, which was still really great income. That was the driving factor. It was just whenever I did something, it was um, the payout was huge, you know? 
And you probably have a smaller team compared to your transportation company, right? Yeah. So basically what I did was the way we worked at my trustee or where I was effective in trustee sales is we had a small team of people, a partner and I, and then basically we used my transportation company to go and analyze deals, look at deals. And back then it was a lot slower paced. The technology is not what we're used to today. They would basically send us pictures of the houses and then where we had the cutting edge against everybody is that we had 50, 60 drivers at our disposal around the Bay Area at any time. So they were basically doing your like driving for dollars for you. So what we would do is this was in 2000. So when I started really doing this heavily, what I'm describing right now was in 2009 when the crash had just taken place. So there was, you know, sometimes there was 500 to 1,000 properties that were going in Alameda County. And our job was to track them all, which we used to use the Inner City Express. We would track them all. And then we'd have some guys even back then in India that helped us sort out the list. And then what we had to do was we had to look at all these properties prior to the sale, which took place on in Contra Costa County. It was early at 10 a.m. And then in Alameda County, that sale took place at noon. So what you had to do is you had to go out, look at all these properties, you know, research the title, and then be ready to bid and buy. Just like that, it was no title research, no escrow company, no nothing like that, you know. So if you don't know what trustee sales are, do you want to explain it really quickly? Yeah. So basically a trustee sale is somebody that's not, that has defaulted on their mortgage. And now the bank is stepping in and say, hey, you know what, you're not able to perform. So we are going to take your property to auction. And then people show up, they bid on the property and they force the sale. And then they issue a a trustee sales receipt. And then essentially what you get in about two weeks after the receipt is a trustee's deed. And then that trustee's deed you record and makes you the owner or that creates the ownership for whatever entity purchased the property. And so you had your guys just drive around to make sure the house wasn't like burned down or something, right? Yeah. So we would have them do a couple of things since we were in so many counties the, the primary focus was looking at the house, analyzing the property, but at the same time, analyzing the neighborhood because there was a lot to do. We had, you know, an escrow person that worked for us full time in our office that would research title. And then we have several other guys that were running comps, comparables. And then we had the separate guys out in the field driving and looking at properties. Then we had two guys that basically carried our checks and went out to trustee sales and then bid at the auction. And then once they bid on the auction, what were you doing with the properties? So back then I would basically, it was carpet and paint. We would go in, we would paint it, we'd put carpet in it. And our goal was to get it on the market as fast as possible. We weren't doing too much wholesaling. I mean, we had a couple of people that that sometimes would come and buy properties from us. We would, you know, flip it off to them for twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Those were fun. You know, had I known what I know today, I would have done more of that. But it was mostly taking properties that didn't need much rehab other than like carpet, paint, general cleanup, and then getting them right on the on back on the market. And you're saying you would have done more wholesales because it's like a quicker process? Well, it was just faster, right? I mean, in that type of business, it's how fast can you turn the money? If you can turn a bunch of money and then be ready again the next day with the same amount you started, you have the ability to purchase more properties. So our capital stash, you know, sometimes ran out, but we leveraged heavily. So we used several hard money lenders to do it. So we always had 20 to 30% in a deal. And it wasn't like it is today where today you go and you, some people do 90 or 100 
I, I can't even believe that's happening. And then they finance 100% of construction. I remember years ago when I heard 100% construction, I was like, what the hell is this? You know, this is really weird. So back then it's like a hard money lender came in, they would meet us at the trustee sale. As soon as we purchased the property, they would put up 70, we would put up 30%, and then we would basically buy the property. So you had to purchase the properties with cash, right? On the spot? Yeah, all cash. Okay. So basically, you know, a lot of the times what we would do, and a lot of people would do this, is that if we found somebody that would want to buy it, let's say we purchased the property at one o'clock, by four o'clock, we had either all of our money back or we had 30% back. We'd call the lender and say, hey, XYZ is going to take this property. When you get the receipt, is it okay? You know, Since we were buying it pennies on the dollar, the lender didn't really care. I mean, there was so much equity in the deals. So what we would do at times is basically tell the lender, hey, I've got Jack. He's going to be taking the property. And he'd say, okay, he's got 30%. Yeah, he's going to give me my 30% back. Here's his information. Deed the property to him. We'd call the, the trustee and basically say, hey, we're changing ownership and whatnot. And then the ownership would go back to him. We would get our 30% back plus twenty or $30,000. So had I done that five or six times a day, I mean, you know, if you do that seven days or five days a week, that's significant, you know? So that's probably one thing I would have done back then, but I'm sure I'll be back. You know, I'm sure I'll be back in the trustee business someday. So at that time when you were doing that, was the lender getting cashed out from this new buyer or they were just assuming that same loan? So basically what the lender would do is he would keep his 70% or 70% of whatever we purchased for in the deal. The 30% that we would put down, we'd say, Jack, look, meet our lender. Our lender is going to continue to ride the 70%. You're going to give us our 30% back plus 20000 And now you're going to own the property. You give me whatever LLC or whatever you want. You're going to be ownership of the property. You're going to have to make our lender monthly payments. So we would introduce both of them and say, hey, here's the way it works. And then we would be completely out of the deal. We would basically, two weeks after we purchased it, the trustee's deed came and it would be under the new buyer's name. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they're basically assuming your loan, kind of. They're assuming the loan. Yeah, that's what it is. But it was... um, there was no deed. It was just based on a receipt. So it was just a handwritten receipt and saying, hey, you purchased this property and XYZ. The deed wouldn't come until two weeks later. Got it. And how are you finding that list of buyers? So the list of buyers, we weren't that great at that. What we did was mostly we did carpet and paint and our goal was to make $100,000 per property. So what we did mostly was basically take the property, put in a little bit of money into it, and then put it right back on the market. At that time, you didn't have your own construction crew, right? No, had nothing. I basically just had, we were just winging it. You know, we had guys just, you know, we'd hire and they were not licensed or anything. And we just bring them on board and they would do work for us. You got to remember one thing back in 2008 and nine, it's not like it is today. There were so many people available to work. You know, people were excited and happy to be able to work. That's all they wanted to do. So you had all this massive amounts of people with, so much knowledge that you can get a bargain on. I mean, it's not like it is today where, you know, you have to pay a carpenter $60, $65 an hour, $50 an hour. Back then it was like, you know, 150 a day. And that's what we did, you know? Nice. So then uh, I guess those trustee sales really carried you to be able to do massive scale in the later years, right? So we kept doing it. All we did was 
we acquired more cash, so we kept just buying more. And then sometime around 11 and 12, it just there weren't as many, and the margins started going down. So I got out of it for a couple of years and then started doing something else. I opened up a grocery store in San Jose. You were out of real estate. You were doing a grocery store in San Jose. Yeah, so I did a grocery store in San Jose for about six months. We lost about four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in that time. And then right after that, I was forced back into real estate because that's what I knew how to do. And I got back into real estate and then just basically took off again. So question for you, like was that, you know, four hundred five hundred K loss, like was that like probably your worst, I guess, loss in your life to that point? Yeah. Yeah, that was, man. That hurt. You know, I, I cried like a baby for the first time and it was a huge lesson. It was something. And actually in the next 60 days, I'm, I'm buying another grocery store. So I'm going back in to kick some butt. I just bought a, I'm in contract right now in a grocery store in Oakland and I'm going to close it within the next 60 days. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. But that's such an interesting transition. So like, why would you go to grocery stores from real estate? And then, you know, I guess what was the lessons learned from that mistake? Well, in a grocery store, I mean, if you hit, I mean, it, it is a profitable business. It's very little money. I mean, it, you know, you're not making the margins. The margins aren't nothing like real estate, but I look at it like right now I'm buying the building. I am buying the business and it's something that I can run without having me involved on the day-to-day basis, or at least that's what I think I can do right now. Basically today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a team. I'm going to be there maybe, you know, an hour a day. And I just want something where it can create you know, in real estate, it's a transactional based business, right? If I'm not out there finding deals, I'm not getting paid. The rentals that I have that are producing income, but I want a few different type of businesses. I'm a grocery store being one of them because it's a cash flow um, thing, right? I mean, if I get it up to speed and I get the right team involved, then it'll be just generating income on a daily basis without having to be there. I can go wherever I want and this thing can still be on automatic pilot. Yeah, it's diversifying your assets too. Because like you said, you don't want to have all your money in real estate in case something really bad happens. I don't. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm kind of prepping that up. I've been buying quite a bit of just single family houses and multi-units and renting them like we talked the last time of, through Airbnb and, and stabilizing rents. You know, I have a couple of um, units that I rent long term and then I have some others that I just fill in with Airbnb. Yeah. What were the lessons that you learned from your grocery store experiences? You know, from my grocery store experience, I was just talking to my son about this this morning. And one of the real big lessons that I learned since I was in real estate, I wanted it to be beautiful. So I looked at it from a standpoint of having a really nice grocery store, which it we did a good job on it. We spent probably about $300,000 just in improvements. So this time around, what I'm doing is I'm not really spending anything in improvements. I'm making it pay for itself versus me investing a whole bunch of money in and then expecting to get paid back. So what I'm doing with this place, I'm basically just taking over. I'm going to paint it. I'm going to work on it slightly. And then I am going to basically just have it producing income and and build a team around it. So lesson learned for me is definitely, you know, I spent too much money the first time around just on construction. My employee cost was astronomical. I wanted everything perfect and it winded up costing me a lot of money. Honestly, that sounds like some of my flip projects where I wanted to make it too, too, like I want to make it too nice when in reality, you don't need that nice for this area. Yeah. Right. We have the same issues of rehabs, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, with a flip, it's really, you know, it's hard to let go, especially if you're a perfectionist, it's never ready. Right. But essentially you just got to get the freaking thing on the market. I run into this problem a lot where 
I'm constantly nitpicking at something. So what I do with flips like this is I get involved, heavily involved the last two days. So they'll send me pictures. My team will start sending me pictures. And I'll say, no, you guys are not ready for me. Fix this and this and this and this and that. And then as soon as I see that it's acceptable, then I go in and I really start creating a punch list. And I basically just get them out of there. I start creating an exit out. And a lot of this stuff is sometimes really easy, right? It's like, what's all this shit over here? Oh, that's all paint and tools and all. Okay, do we need this? Well, you know, why do we need shovels if landscaping's done? We got 20 shovels. Start the, the easy way is just to start clearing the shit out and get everything out. And then, you know, having the space to really identify those things that the buyers are going to see. And then just creating a punch list, you know what I mean? And so the last two days for me are the critical ones. Those are the days where I'm heavily invested in a flip. I'm usually there, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. And I'm, my goal is just to get these guys out. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about you coming back from your grocery store experience. So you take a big loss and now you're going back into real estate. Did you have finances still to go in or did you have to start partnering with other people because of that huge loss? So all I had was my reputation and I had $80,000 left. Back then I had three kids. So I had just, my oldest was three years old and I had a brand new baby that was just born with $80,000. And I took a big risk. I went and I purchased a property. I called a friend that had purchased properties for me in the past. And I says, Hey, I just bought a property. Do you want to buy it? Well, she says, well, what do you want for it? I says, well, just give me $10,000. And that worked. And that was the first deal that I made was I sold it to her the next day, made 10 grand, got some of my confidence back. It was probably the best 10 grand I ever made in my life, you know, because it was such a critical point in my life. And from then on out, I just, you know, I went to people that I knew and I says, hey, I'm back on the business. A friend of mine let me borrow a few hundred thousand dollars to get back in, of course, with points and interest. But it wasn't against a property. It was just against my reputation and my experience. And that's what I did was I went from having 80 grand to in the next two weeks, having almost $300,000 to start all over and get my real estate business back up and running. Awesome. And what year was that? This was in 2012. Okay. 2012. So the market was still, in my opinion, 2012 was probably one of the best years, at least for me. I don't know if it was just a combination with just being challenged and not having many resources and and it was a must do versus a want to do. But that year, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, were all great years. But between 2014 and 15, it started changing for trustee sales. Trustee sales started kind of going away and I had to find other ways to keep up. And then it was just like what I'm doing right now. It's just relationships with people and people knowing who I am and what I do. And, and then that was it, just building relationships with realtors, other people that had deals. And, and now it's completely different. These days, it's just completely different. So is that what you were doing when you first got back into it? You were going back to a trustee sale with just $80,000 in your pocket and you got something? So you have to remember that I knew a bunch of lenders and $80,000 would allow me to buy something up to, let's say, 300000 right? 30, 60, 90. Well, not even 300. The first one that I bought was like 260. So I put all my money up on this thing, putting 30% down. But I knew the house and I knew it very well. So I had practically you know, looked at this thing upside down, knowing that this was my last kind of chance to make it or break it. And I knew that even if I didn't sell it to this person and just make 10 grand, that I could basically take it, flip it, with the relationships that I had. So even though I only had 80 grand, I still had a lot of relationships with people that knew my work 
and that would lend either against the property that I had in Belmont or they would just lend just basically on me. And, that, and that's what I did was a friend of mine that I still do business with today, let me borrow a couple hundred thousand and that just um, made a lot of big change. It got me, my confidence was back up and I was able to focus on really making money opposed to going and kind of scared thinking, shit, if I fuck this up, this is the end of everything, you know? I know exactly what you mean because I've been doing that myself for the past year. Yeah. But so for that one property where you say you probably got it from like 250 or so at auction, what do you think it was worth? So that property was probably worth about 380, 380 or so is, is what it was worth. The person that I sold it to did not want to flip it. They basically just wanted to hold it. So what I said is, look, I'm going to charge you only $10,000, but I'm going to hook you up with a team of people that I know that can basically turnkey it for you in the next two weeks, which will allow you to cash flow on it. So that was very attractive to her. She was an elderly woman and it worked out. I mean, I connected her and I basically kind of managed the project for a few days for her just to make sure that everything was good. And then she took it from there. Cool. So now you say like 2015, 2016, things are changing. What did you do to change your strategy? It was more based just on buying deals and I was adding square footage. So that was kind of the year that I started adding 500 square feet in Oakland. I call them plays, right? I mean, that play there was just, even till today, that's a really solid play. Why? Because you can get through the building department in two to three weeks and you can have your job card and ready to build and add 500 square feet. So what I did back then was I was looking for smaller houses, you know, 800, 1,000 square feet. And then I added... 500 square feet on a single story. Now that is key because you can't add a second story because the second you add the second story, then you got to go under design review. You got to notify the neighborhood. You got to do all that stuff. So just adding that 500 square feet, most of the times I either added a kitchen or a master bedroom. And that right there was just dynamite. I mean, I did that for many years. And on most flips, I was doing 60, 70, 80, 100, 150 per transaction. Yeah. I think a lot of people that I know also want to do that strategy where they're putting in maybe like 400 or 500 square feet as additions, because like you said, if it's not too big, then you don't have to go through like design review and stuff like that. It's like an over-the-counter permit. Yeah. But we usually do it in the South Bay where South Bay, it's like maybe a thousand dollars per square foot in Oakland. Is it still, it's not a thousand dollars per square foot, right? You're probably only getting like 500 or so. So in Oakland, depending on where you're at, if you're in West Oakland, I did this a lot in West Oakland, and I have a new house that's coming out on the market in the next week and a half. It's at 1036 Wood Street. I built this thing, ground up construction. And for me, it's always been about design. It's always been about really bringing something to the market that's different, not traditional, like cheap windows and cheap. You can do cheap stuff, but you have to just, you know, there has to be a real sense of design. So that's where I really stood out. In West Oakland right now, you can probably get up to 700, 750 a foot. So it is better. Like I'm doing a big one right now in Palo Alto. That is a large deal. We bought this house for $2.3 million. We're adding 2,100 square feet. And the price per square foot here is $1,400. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And are you using your own construction crew to do this? Yeah. So then how do you budget on like a dollar per square foot basis for additions? So my cost per square foot right now is probably running about 250 to 300 a foot. So yeah, you're making another 200 or so, or even 500 in West Oakland even, right? Totally worth it. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for me, it works. And the reason that I like West Oakland is because 
if you're in the South Bay or if, if you're in Palo Alto, like this deal in Palo Alto, not that I would trade it. I mean, this is a solid deal. I could split that money four or five different times in Oakland where somebody else that's just putting all their eggs into one basket, maybe they have more money. They have to go in and put a million plus in a deal where I can put a million plus and split it, th- split it three or four times in West Oakland. Yeah. And see, that's one of my challenges personally. It's like, do you go with a you know, general contractor and rely on them to do all the work? Or do you take on the general contractor mantle yourself and hire all the work? You're, you know, you hire all the work and you create your own team. When did you start creating your own team instead of just getting some random person to do all the work for you? So I became a licensed contractor by force, not because I wanted to become a licensed contractor. I was working on a project and the CSLB, the Labor Board, Unemployment Office, and OSHA. They all showed up like a task force. Like if I was like drug dealer or something, they're like, hey, you know, and I'm like, shit, who the hell are you guys? And they're like, oh, we're, you know, we're here, nobody move type situation. And they basically came and said, what's going on here? We got some calls and they said that you guys are doing some really crazy stuff here. So they say, who's the licensed contractor? I says, well, there's no licensed contractor because this is my house. I'm working on it. Well, they said, well, where's the workers comp for all these guys? They're all independent contractors. I'm W9 and all of them. I said, well, you can't do that. If any of these guys get hurt, there's going to be an issue. And what happened was the CSLB came down on me and said, you need to get a license. And I says, well, I don't have the four years experience. They said, well, you need to stop doing what you're doing. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so I said, what other ability do I have to get a license? So they basically said, you know what? You need four years experience. So what I did was I gathered all the job cards that I had for the last They wouldn't let me go back further than 10 years, I think it was. So I had to stack all these job cards and basically show them that I had four years of experience. Well, that was a disaster because halfway through, well, I finished the whole entire package and then they said, oh no, you can't. So basically, if you have three projects going on at one time, you can only use one project. You can't use three. So you have to have actual four years. doesn't matter how many projects you're doing within that same time frame, but you have to have four solid years of history. And I went back to the drawing board. It was a disaster trying to, I had to go to the building department, pull these things up. Basically I got everything back to them. And then they said, okay, go ahead and take your exam. Hmm. And have you thought that it's worth it? No, I hate it because my workers comp bill is crazy. Like sometimes I feel like it's not fair, right? I mean, I have to pay all this workers comp and then I see other people that are doing what I used to do. And I'm like, shit, that's a sweet business. You know what I mean? Because you you bypass all these expenses. But on the flip side, I mean, if you hire a contractor, I think that's a terrible business. And why is that? Well, you don't have any control, right? The contractor has all the control. He's going to show up when he wants. He's going to basically take money from you to possibly catch up on two other things that he has going on. He's going to take your money and he's going to go fix it. Now I'm speaking on a general level. Not all contractors do this. This is just my personal experience. He's going to take my money. He's going to go finish two other jobs that he had that he didn't finish off on the money that he already spent. Then he's going to start bitching and complaining on my job. I'm going to be bitching and complaining because he's not around. And then he's going to create a bunch of change of work orders to basically try to create a a solution to all of these problems that he created. I see. So right now you are a general contractor and you're hiring out your own team. So let's talk about that. How are you finding people to work with you? So what I do is I basically get one guy that is experienced and then I get a bunch of other guys that are not experienced. Okay. And how are you finding these people? Right now I use several sites. Like I think there's one that is Indeed. 
we use several sites. I don't, I don't know what those sites are. My people in the Philippines are doing all that for me. They basically sort through a bunch of people and say, Hey, we went through 50 or 75. What I do is I have them call them at least twice. And if they don't answer, then I don't even need to know what's going on with them. I have somebody interview them on the phone. If they're late, then there's no need for them to even get in front of me. So everything's interviewed through the Philippines first online or over a telephone call. And if the guys are showing up late, if they just don't meet the criteria that I'm looking for, then they stop it at that point. The guys that only talk to me are really guys that have already gone through that process and meet my criteria. And how big is your crew now? So right now I have, I think today we have 14 guys that that are working with us. So of those 14, you would say maybe two or three are super experienced and the rest are relatively new? So four of those guys are super experienced. And then the other guys are been with me for a while. Most guys that are kind of the labor kind of guy usually last about a little bit over a year. And then they tend to leave after that. Mm, I see. So you're always looking for new talent. Yeah. What happens is that, you know, after they're working with me for a year, they start picking up on construction and then they leave because they know that they can get paid more than staying with me because I only pay them 15 bucks an hour. Is that right? I see. But I mean, you're offering the, the opportunity to like get trained in the, in, the, in the trades. Absolutely. But I'm careful about what I do. As I'm doing this more and more, if I have a guy that I don't expose them to all the trades, I'll basically say, hey, you know what? You are a cleaning guy. So your job is to grab all this freaking garbage and put it in the dumpster. Your job is basically to run this wire through every hole you see. And so I don't really train them anymore like I used to simply because the turnover is too high. So I'm trying to reduce that by not providing so much training where it's kind of just use me for a few months and then you're gone, you know? Mm -hmm. So how many projects are you kind of doing at the same time? So active right now, I've got four projects that are in construction. That means that there's people there working right now as we speak. And those projects are, are being worked on and will soon hit the market. With 14 people, do you ever feel pressure to do more deals? Even, you know, let's say the market does soften where you're at. Do you feel like, man, like I want to just chill, but since I have a crew behind me, I have to actually have work for them to do? No, not really. So my strategy is this, as long as I can keep those four guys busy, the other guys just, I can always find those guys. So I can go down to one project. And as long as I can keep my guys occupied and busy, to weather the storm, right? To get through the storm, then I'm okay with that. But those four solid guys that I have have been working with me for numerous years. We've built a great relationship. I pay them significantly. I mean, they're above and beyond. And as long as I can keep those four guys occupied, then I'm okay with that. Okay, cool. And in terms of your day-to-day management, you just trust those four guys to handle the projects? I do. Very cool. So you don't like you don't yeah, you don't go into the projects until it's like maybe one or two days before it's you're done. What I recently started doing is I started just doing more stuff through pictures and video and not going to the project as much. But there'll be times where I just say, you know what, today I'm just going to go and I'll just walk in and just walking in kind of, it's a trip because there was a guy that quit on me a couple of weeks ago and I go, Hey, why'd you quit? He's like, man, I I thought that, that you didn't like what I was doing because you never showed up. I said, well, it's quite the contrary. I mean, I didn't show up because I thought you were doing a great job and you're sending me pictures and this stuff. So people get emotional, you know what I mean? But when I go, it's just usually walk in, 
And then what I did was with my four guys, they have the ability to make the, the call. It's their call. It's their decision. They already kind of know that they don't kind of know. They know exactly what I've been doing, what my strategy is. So they're going to do it probably a lot better than I can. And what about for design choices? Are you sending them pictures? Like, I want this to look like this. Yeah. So design choice, what I found the most cost-effective way to do it, this is not fair to say. What I do right now is I use Pinterest. And I basically just type up really basic stuff and say, what house is trendy right now? And I'll get some images and then I'll just say, hey, guys, we're kind of going with this style, like the house you went to, right? I painted a house black where that was really gutsy, but that was trendy. And that house is happening right now. I mean, it's been pending once before and the guys just tried to nickel and dime me. So I said, you know what? Don't worry about it. I let them out of the contract and now I'm back on the market. But that's what I do. I use that and then... I basically just send it to my guys through email and I says, Hey, we want it to look like this. And then they take it from there. Cool. What about if you get like a new lead, do you just send them over to take a look at it? Or do you actually walk the properties yourself now? Like if I'm going to buy something, right? Mm, it depends. So if I'm really busy and the, and the person's like, Hey, I want somebody to see this. Then I basically just send somebody to really just look at the property and not negotiate or do anything like that. But of the time, it's me. I'm going to the property. I'm looking at it. I'm negotiating with the person and I'm closing the deal. Cool. And what is your main source of leads right now? So right now, what I just started doing brand new, which is really working out tremendously is texting. So like text message blasting, right? It's not a blast. It's basically on a case by case basis. So there's one text that goes out at a time and then it's all on one screen. So we're able to text out and then There's a drip system that we basically organize our files or organize our leads. And I've been going into different areas other than the Bay Area. I started doing it in North Carolina just for the last three weeks or two and a half weeks. And that seems to be going very well. We closed one deal so far down there. And then just local here as well. The response rate that I'm getting is a lot better from just traditional stuff that I've been doing, right? I was spending $10,000 sometimes every 10 days and not getting a single lead from it. Yeah, because I mean, direct mail is like 70 cents per letter or 50 cents a postcard. Text is what? 10 cents? Text is, so there's two ways. We have to pay for the lead. We have to, it's, I think we're paying 15 cents per lead. Does that include the text itself? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. So you get the leads and you get the, do you get the uh, skip trace and get the actual phone numbers, right? Yep. Okay. And then what software do you use to do this text message plus? I use... There's three of them that we use. I don't have it, but I can send it to you. I don't do it myself. It's basically all done in the Philippines. I've never even used it. I don't text anyone. Basically, those guys are just texting like crazy. And then what I do is I have one guy that basically answers all the texts. He grew up here in LA, so he's a California guy, and he talks just like you and I. He doesn't have an accent. So what they do is there's people that that have an accent that are texting, 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 And then this guy comes around and just once he has a fish on the line, then he'll jump in and just start to try to close the deal. If he sees that there's equity in the deal, he contacts me. I'm not in North Carolina, but I have a friend that is. And he went down there, took a look at it. We were able to buy that. And then here local, then I would definitely go down there and look at the property. Oh, so your guy from LA, he's in North Carolina, not in the Philippines. No, my guy from LA was born and raised in LA. He was divorced. He got separated and he decided to go to Manila. Now he's in Manila. I mean, he's been there for the last four years. So I think that's one real critical thing for me that I was able to find this guy because a lot of people in the Philippines, they 
they can only get it to a certain point. And then if the prospect on the line kind of feels like, what the hell is this? You know, just the accent's too strong or some indication, they just don't take it that serious, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I know what you mean. That's really cool. So you have a system in place. And how many people are actually texting at the same time? So right now we have six different subscriptions with like three companies, three different companies. So there's six people texting at all times. So do you expect your guy who's on the phone to be kind of like awake during the US hours? I expect him. That's the only time he's working. I mean, there's nobody working during the off hours. The best time to text is between, I think it's seven and seven to, or six to, it's early morning. It's in the afternoon and it's in the evening. We only text Monday through Saturday. We don't text anybody on Sunday. And then people usually get the text and they either call that number or the text right back, right? And then that's when it goes to his number. So as I was looking at this text thing, right, I thought of myself and I said, how are people reaching me? Because I'm on the defensive, right? Anybody tries to reach me, I'm like, I don't take anybody's phone call. I rarely answer my phone unless I know who it is. But what I do get all the time is I get texts. You get texts as well, right? Yep. Like I, I get texts about, I'm not going to exaggerate, anywhere from one to three times a day about business loans. Hey, you know what? We want to give you a business loan. And all this stuff is done with text. Well, I look at a lot of the texts, right? So somebody texts you something, you look at it. You may not respond to it, but you look at it. And that's what we want is when we're prospecting, we want people to look at it. I mean, that's why we send goofy postcards or we send things because or people, you know, hand write handwritten letters because the response rate is a lot greater. And that's what text I think is offering right now is basically that ability to have people look at it. Right. I mean, yeah, you get a text, it's almost 99% chance that they're going to open it at least. Yeah, you're, you're going to see it. We're so addicted to our phone, right? I mean, I carry my phone everywhere. From the, It charges at night. As soon as I get up, the first thing I do is I grab my phone. I get my headset on. I listen to motivational stuff. I'm, but I always have my phone with me. It's just one thing that, that I always do. I mean, it's here with me right now. And I think most people are the same, right? A lot of people are checking their Facebook and doing all this stuff where they're doing it on their phone. So I'm excited, man. I'm definitely excited about moving forward and mass texting. I wish I could have 20 people texting at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. And why do you choose North Carolina? Because the margins are really huge. Um, So the margins out there, I went to an event a couple of weeks ago, a boardroom over in Las Vegas, and I just met a bunch of people that were got up on stage and they're like, hey, this is what I do. And everybody would get up and basically... The way it works is you get up there and you say, my name is Juan Diaz. This is what I do. Here's my slideshow. Here's what's going on. Here's all the things I do. And then you have everybody in the crowd saying, well, why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing that? Why don't you apply this? So they're basically criticizing you. They put you in a hot seat. So what I found is that out of everybody that was up there, the margins to me seem the best in North Carolina. Got it. Uh, so when you're closing a deal in North Carolina, ultimately, when your employee in the Philippines talks to the potential seller, Does he then transfer it to you to close the deal? Yeah. So basically the way it works is the texting stops and he says, hey, I'm going to have the owner of the company call you. Is that okay if he reaches out to you right now? And then the texting does stop at that point. And then we get on the phone. I basically just, I try to connect with them as much as I can. And then if, if I can be as short as possible and say, hey, why don't I just come by? I want to take a look at the property. Is that okay? When can I come by? Versus I don't try to negotiate over the phone unless, you know, like, even in North Carolina, I have my friend go out and like he closed the deal there on the spot. So basically, it's just kind of a, hey, how are you? What's a good time? You know, I, I'm in the area next week, or I mean, I wouldn't say next week. I'm in the area today or tomorrow. Can I take a look at the property? 
And I always like to do it face-to-face versus doing it on the phone. Makes sense. And then when you close on property, is the strategy to wholesale in North Carolina or are you trying to flip there as well? So right now I am desperately trying to just wholesale a lot of the deals that I have. Whatever I can make, if I can, I'm not going to like not continue to flip houses, but I really want to incorporate heavily on wholesaling more deals than actually spending too much time there. And how are you going to get your buyers list in North Carolina? So what we did, we went on to, what's that website called? Home something. What is a website out there that's called everybody's using it where it has um, a buyer's list, a bunch of wholesalers that are on there. I don't know what the name is, but we basically went on there and we downloaded all the buyers that were in a certain area. And then we really started prospecting and reaching out to them. We've tried to go on through social media. We go on through Google. We try to find or we're building our buyers list, not only in North Carolina, but here local as well. And then what I'm doing here local, which is more unique than I think than the average traditional wholesaler, is I'm providing a little bit of coaching for the person that's doing the job if they want it. Most people do want it because they know what I've done and and they've seen my projects. So what I do is I wholesale something to someone. I'll say, hey, this is what I think you should do to the project. Here's the design that you need to go after. It's all written down. It's a three pages worth of stuff from you know, what type of hardware to use, where to buy it, what type of paint to use, what type of carpet to use, all those things. And I'm basically turning over something on what I would do. This is how I would flip this house. And if you want it, here it is. Go ahead and take it. If not, do it the way you want, you know? Mm, yeah, it's very helpful and definitely makes it more attractive for a buyer to purchase your property. Yeah, especially somebody that's starting out, right? If I had somebody that, you know, has flipped over 500 houses and that guy is like, hey, you know what? Here's basically everything that you should do to the home. I'm going to take that. I'm going to utilize it and I'm going to execute it. Um, I may change a little bit, right? It's in everybody's nature not to do every single thing. I may change it but I'm still going to take over 80% of what he's talking about and go ahead and do it. So for me, it's it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I already have all the stuff documented. I could just say, hey, you know what? Here it is. Here's what I do. I spend maybe an hour more with somebody and then that's it. I don't like go, hey, you know what? Call me if you have any challenges or make sure to reach out to me and send me the picture of the house once it's painted. I don't do any of that. I basically just spend a little bit of time with them at the property and say, hey, this is what you do. Record it, videotape it, do whatever you got to do. Because once I'm gone, that's it. I'm leaving. I'm not going to, and I make it very clear that I'm not going to babysit them through the entire process. So how big is your team in the Philippines right now? So the team in the Philippines is pretty much ran by Alan. And Alan is basically runs anywhere from 15 to 20 people, you know? So Alan is a guy from Los Angeles, right? Yeah. Got it. Uh, and But his team is mostly consistent of people who are texting people on a mass scale. And what else are they doing? So right now, what I did was in the last week, we have basically taken all of the accounting and we've moved it to Pakistan. So I have somebody in Pakistan that has been working with me for the last four and a half, five years doing my accounting. So we've moved all that over to Pakistan. And now the Philippines is just day-to-day operations, doing phone sales at Home Depot, sourcing materials, getting appliances, talking to realtors, controlling my files. And then the rest of that, what I just mentioned, is all just acquisitions. Okay. Very nice. Yeah, because I'm actually thinking about doing that, doing something similar in the next year, building a team and you know, actually taking action. Because I know that if I am the one doing it, then at some point I might stop, right? But if you have a team, you have a system running in operation, then it'll keep going, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, 
the beginning is very challenging, right? But that's what I like about the whole virtual thing is most people give up. And it's at that time where you need to really stand up and keep going. So what I do is if I'm trying to hire one, I think I told you this the last time we met, mentally, I'm trying to hire 10 or 15 people. Because out of those 10 and 15 people, 13 or 14 of them are going to be full of shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have a job post right now for like all my other content. And uh, yeah, I get like 70 people hitting me up, right? So I just send them all those tests. And then all the people that like message me back, I only pick maybe one or two. But ultimately, you have a list of 10. I mean, I don't send anybody a test. My first test is, can you be somewhere on time? So, hey, you know what? I'm not available today. Can we talk in two hours? Make sure to call me at 11 o'clock PST. If they can't do that, then they're out. Because I don't want to spend too much time, right? I just say, hey, you know what? And I don't even do this. I just taught somebody how to do it. And what I do is I go on there and I says, hey, can you start working right now? And they'll say, oh, no, I can't. I got, you know, then I don't want that. I only want the people that can start working right now. So my first question to them is, can you start working right now? I want to hire you. Oh, yeah, I can start right now. So I go ahead and hire them. And then as soon as I hire them, I say, okay, do this easy task. See how long it's going to take you. And then they basically come back to me. And and if I'm watching them, I have somebody watching them on a screen. If the guy's like, you know what? This guy's not working out. I just say, you know what? I don't even talk to the guy. (laughs) Call it ruthless. Call it whatever you want. I just turn them off on Upwork and that's it. We're done. We're on to the next one. Got it. So is Upwork your favorite website to hire uh, help? So what I do is I use online jobs PH for sourcing and then I bring them onto Upwork. Is there a reason for that? Yeah. So online jobs PH is strictly in the Philippines and they have massive amounts of people. So if I were to put some post out right now, I would get hit like with, you know, 50 or a hundred people. And then I use, they don't have a platform like Upwork. So I use the Upwork platform because it controls my billing and it just has a lot of neater tools um, that I need in order to run the business. Got it. Yes. Cause right now I'm using PayPal, and, but the problem with PayPal is you have to manually pay them uh, yourself, which can be annoying. And what I think about this is here's my strategy is if I ever get audited, everything is in Upwork. It's in one place. I paid Upwork, which is in Mountain View, right? Right down the street from me. That's the company that I'm using to pay these people. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's that's what I'm going to do. And if I am using PayPal, then I really don't have any way to prove to them that, you know, who the hell did you pay? Why well, I paid this guy? What's, you know, I just don't want to get caught in that. And if I get audited or whatever, Everything's in Upwork. I can go back as far as I want. I can say, hey, here it is. All my notes are in there. Everything is in there. Yeah, I'm paying Upwork a big fee. Not big, but it's a fee that I pay them. But I think it's great. I mean, I've been audited by EDD numerous times, and I know the way the process works. Oh, no. So what's next for you? This is it, man. So I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to definitely um, start this grocery store. I plan to um, be in there. I want to buy more multi-units. I'm doing some commercial space over in Oakland. I'm going to be doing wholesaling and and just flipping properties. That's it. So let's talk about a scenario. Like imagine you are where you were back in 2012. You know, you came out of a a smaller downfall and now you have, you know, 80,000 left in your pocket. It's 2020 coming up. What do you do? I basically try to look at one project. Well, I'm not looking at one project. I'm looking at multiple. But as soon as I find something that's interesting, I try to make sure that I'm 100% sure that this is going to work. I'm not buying anything that is on the MLS, probably. I'm not buying anything from a wholesaler. I am either trying to text people and buy things off market. And I think that what I know today about texting, that's where I would spend most of my time. I would hire maybe one or two people, focus on texting, 
and then wholesale and try to build up my capital stash until I can go out and flip again. Very cool. What is your text message comprised of? What are you asking them? So basically, the initial contact is, hey, do you want to sell your house? And then from there on out is questions like, well, what are you asking for it? What condition is it in? If that's engaging, then Alan will don't really take over. To be honest, I, I've given that kind of over to him. I've said, hey, you handle it. Do all the research you can on this stuff. Let's make it happen. One thing I've learned in business is that I don't need to be involved with everything. You know what I mean? A lot of times people will say, what's the name of this? And I'm like, Shit, you know what? I don't know. Basically, I'm looking for somebody that's qualified so that I don't have to do everything. I'm not looking to know every single little thing that's going on. Like for a lot of years, I spent so many hours and so much time trying to be involved in every little aspect of my business. And I'm just no longer doing that. I give it to him. I says, hey, this is what our target is. This is what we're trying to do. Do the best job you can with the team and make it happen. That seems to work out pretty cool. I mean, if you have somebody that has a good business sense and and really understands your goals and what you're trying to do, then you just let them do their job, you know? So do you have any final tips for our listeners before we end the show today? I would say just kick ass, work as hard as you can, limit the amount of hours you sleep. And, you know, this is hard work. This is not, I run into a lot of people sometimes that they're just like, hey, I want to do a flip or whatever. And they get involved and they're like, shit, did I really sign up for this? I mean, this is really some crazy stuff, right? I mean, you have to put up a bunch of money. You're constantly risking. And in the beginning, you're actually gambling because you don't know what you're doing. Thank you so much for your advice today. How can people get in contact with you? You can reach out to me a couple of ways on my meetup page. You can email me. You can call me at any time. If I don't answer, I will definitely have someone ring you back. My telephone number is 510-867-3040. My email address is jdiaz at equitytrack.com. You can reach me there. And if not, you can reach me on social media or my meetup page. Perfect. Juan, thank you again so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. I take care. Take care. Here are some key takeaways from this episode. Marketing strategies change all the time. In the past, direct mail was king, and now it seems like cold calling and texting work more efficiently. Most businesses also fail because the founders give up. They get burned out from cold calling or door knocking. So find solid members on Upwork or onlinejobs.ph to hire out the tasks that you don't want to do. This will free up your time to do things that you actually enjoy. So focus on creating systems I can keep you away from giving up on your business. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.